Okay, this morning we are, we made it to chapter 5 in Hebrews now. <laughs> so, we're moving along. We're still talking about the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but the book of Hebrews is the only place in the New Testament where this is discussed, other than there's the high priestly prayer in John 17, but none of Paul's epistles talk about Jesus as high priest, but Hebrews certainly covers the topic in depth. And very, very important topic, just one amongst many reasons why we need to know this, is that knowing that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, that he's entered once for all into the holiest place, into the very presence of God, and that he's done so as both God and man, that he's done so having taken away sins, having made atonement for sins once for all, that having this high priest, that this, that his ministry is continually available to every Christian. And that's something that is being emphasized here in the book of Hebrews. And, and knowing this, I think, would keep people, if they did know this and they took it seriously, it would keep them from a lot of these strange things that they get into, trying to get closer to God. Um, and because somehow they don't realize that you can't get any closer to God than going to Him through Jesus, who's in the very presence of God. And they wouldn't, and they wouldn't have, <coughs> have looking for some experience that somebody's selling, you know, that's going to make them closer to God. If they just knew this, if they just knew that this great high priest after the order of Melchizedek is always living to make intercession for us, and he's always there, always available, and you can't get any closer to God in this until we actually see him face to face. And so this is a very, very rich topic. So Hebrews 5, beginning with verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. Because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to be Come a high priest, but he said to him, Thou art my son, the day I have begotten thee. Just as he said in another passage, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there's an extended contrast being set up here, and it's going to take quite a few verses before it all comes out. But one of the themes is that Jesus is superior to any kind of earthly priesthood. And he's superior to the uh, Levitical priesthood, and he's superior to the high priest that the Jews were used to having and being tempted to go back to. And as I said, I think a couple weeks ago, I think this temptation goes all the way back to um, the Exodus, where because people want something they can see, rather than to come by faith. And so when Moses went up on the Mount Sinai, the people said to Aaron, we don't know what became of Moses. We can't see him. Make us, make us a, a god. You know, they wanted, and so he made a calf because they, they could see that. And so the temptation is because Jesus, we don't see him. He's ascended into heaven. We have to believe by faith that he really is our high priest. He really is at the right hand of the Father. He is making intercession for us. We do have access to the throne of grace. We have to believe that. Amen. But but people are more prone to something they can see, something tangible, and that's why they set up a human priesthood. They they want a man that they can go to who is a holy man that can stand between them and God. But the only mediator between man and God is the man Christ Jesus. So our access is to him by faith. So the point is now that the, that this human priesthood was inferior because it was made up by sinners. Amen. Okay. And, and one of the things about Jesus that's unique is that he is sinless. So having a sinless high priest who doesn't have to make atonement for his own sins is superior to a priesthood of sinners. That's what we're learning. So back to verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men, now this is contrast to Jesus who was born of the virgin, is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. 
So there was a, the theme here is a thought, the solidarity of the Levitical high priest with those he represents, which was sinners. He's one also. But the priesthood was important and necessary in the Old Testament because it was pointing them toward the need for atonement. It pointed them to the fact that God demanded a payment for sins. So they knew that. And it pointed them forward to Messiah who ultimately would pay for sins. So it had a really important place. It's just that once Christ came, it became obsolete. Amen. All right? So, uh, Dean, could you look up Exodus 28.1 and Dan, Leviticus 9.7. Leviticus 9.7. And a, by the way, a particular concern here is the Day of Atonement. This whole series of chapters in Hebrews not only is about the priesthood of Christ, but it's particularly referencing the Day of Atonement because that's when the high priest went in to the presence of God with the shed blood. And so we're going to see that Jesus did this once for all, and it comes out very clearly in Hebrews 9. Okay, Exodus 28.1. And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother, and his sons with him, from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto thee in the priest's office. Even Aaron, Nadab, Binu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. Okay, so Aaron was the one appointed by God. That's that's the reference. Leviticus 9-7. And Moses said unto Aaron, Go unto the altar and offer thy sin offering and thy burnt offering and make an atonement for thyself and for the people and an offering and offer the offering of the people and make an atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Yeah. So there's the idea that Aaron had to make an atonement for himself because Aaron was a sinner. And he couldn't go into the presence of God unless there's been atonement for his own sins. Right. So this is a contrast with Jesus, because he did pay for sins, but he did not have any of his own. Amen. So that makes him a greater high priest. And then talking about the the priesthood of Aaron, he, in verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, um, since he himself also is beset with weakness. As I'm looking at this, I'm thinking of um, thinking of that distinction that they make that they make in Numbers 15 between willful sin and unintentional sin. Remember, remember talking about that? that yes. Yeah, the ignorant and misguided is, is in a sense uh, in weakness. Using these terms means yes, they're sinners, but they're not defying God. Uh, let me find that. I didn't have it in my notes, but I'm pretty sure it's Numbers 15. And that distinction is is based is used later in Hebrews to talk about apostasy and the unforgivable sin. And the unforgivable sin ultimately is defiance. Amen. You know, it's a rebellion, a willful, continual rebellion against God's plan of salvation, rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. It says in Numbers 15, starting with verse 27, Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But, now here's the contrast. The person who does anything defiantly, whether he's a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. He shall be cut off. His guilt shall be on him. So there's a, there's a distinction between unintentional and defiant sin. Now by unintentional, our English word seems to imply lack of responsibility, but that's not the case at all. It doesn't mean the person isn't responsible. And it doesn't even mean that they may not have just chosen to sin, but realizing it was sinful and felt guilty and repented about it. But it's making a distinction for the one who's willing to acknowledge what God says is sin is sin. 
And what I've done is sinful, and I admit it, and I need forgiveness, and I need atonement. You know, that's this going astray. Defiant is the one who says, I have a right to do this, and I'm not going to let anybody tell me any different. And that's what scares me about some of the stuff going on in the church today. For instance, uh, uh, the idea that um, gay marriages are okay. Because, see, what you're doing is defying. I mean, this is not to just be prejudiced, but as a matter of fact, if somebody says, this is the sin that I tend to fall into, I admit it's sinful, I need forgiveness, and I need God to give me victory, then our, it's our obligation to be kind and compassionate and merciful and to reach out to people. But if somebody says, I have a right to do this and I'm going to do it, and I'm gonna, I don't care what God or anybody else says, that's defying God. You still preach the gospel to such a person. But you don't give them comfort in the church as if it was okay. You see the difference? So I think that same, that same distinction between unintentional and intentional holds today. Now, when we get into the New Testament, one of the things that people are very interested in is this discussion about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And I, it never made any sense to me until I read Numbers 15 many years ago. And I read that and I saw that word. The defiant one is blasphemy. Blasphemy. And then I went and looked up the passage in Matthew. And it was the same thing because Jesus did all these things to prove that he was God's anointed one. Anointed one means anointed particularly by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He walked on water. He multiplied the bread. He, he preached the gospel to the poor. Remember when John the Baptist asked if he is the one? He says the poor had the gospel preached to them. That's a good sign of the Messiah is at work when that happens. Um, and he did all of this. And in the, in, in, in the doing so, the leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, they said, you have a demon. And you are not from God. In other words, you are not the anointed one. And then Jesus warned them about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so what they were doing was being defiant against God. Amen. They were unwilling to admit their sin Amen. and admit that they needed Messiah and that they needed Messianic salvation. They were <clears throat> satisfied with their own approach. And so that was called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now when we get into Hebrews, though the terminology is different, the same warning is given about being cut off and without remedy and about anyone who has trodden underfoot the blood of the covenant in Hebrews 10. Very scary warning. It's still based on the same concept. Defiance. If somebody says, I don't need this Messiah, even if it meant going back to this old priesthood, that's what the issue was here. The author of Hebrews is saying, you are defying God and your sin is going to remain and you will not be forgiven. You can go buy all these goats and go to the high priest and go to the day of atonement. You're still lost because Messiah paid for sins. And if you defy him and say no to Jesus, then that's, you're in this state of defiant sin and you're blasphemy. That's, that's how this all ties together. Okay? So, being an advantage. Farrell is Matthew 18 too. If your brother sins against you, you want to reconcile mm-hmm. that relationship. And when the person who sinned against you continually lives in that sin and continually defies, you bring witnesses, you bring to right. the church, and if he continues, you have no alternative but to release him from the church. And consider him a pagan. Right. Even the, even at that, you never know. He might repent later. Yeah. But then you preach the gospel like you would anybody who was just totally lost. Be- one of the guys out here at the outreach uh, that was helping us, a guy from uh, Bethlehem Baptist named, uh, I think, John Turner. Yes, John. Yeah, really nice. Yes. He says, well, are you going to preach on the three categories of people? I said, well, tell me what they are. <laughs> he says, they're the lost, they're the saved, and they're the unconverted Christians. <laughs> yeah, people in church should think you're saved in art. He said, that's the third category, and they need the gospel, too. <laughs> that was good. Yes, yeah. Well, if the atheist, the gospel said, he that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Well, the atheist tell me the only thing they have in common is unbelief. So they will go to their grave. They tell me to my face in unbelief. So they will go to hell. 
I told them, they've chose, if they write to your dying breath, reject God, they know what the gospel is. They say, the only thing they have in common is unbelief. We will not come by faith. No way, and they'll swear, and we'll die going to the grave. And you're going to the grave with me, Dan, and you're not going to be in heaven with any God, you know. And so they're going, they're defiant, and it's sad. But at least they know the gospel where the church goers, most of them don't even know what the gospel is. And they're not getting off the hook either. If the atheist knows the yeah, They know what they do. They know it's clear. I, I tell you, they know it's by faith. They give me heck all the time. But the church goers don't even know what it is. Well, you know, Dan, it's sad. I appreciate the fact that you still show love and compassion. I love and that faith has led me to Christ. He became a Christian and he went to preach in England and before he left he told me the gospel. So I jumped for joy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, God bless you for uh, your So I always tell the atheists I love them. You never know. You never know when somebody might meet the Lord. They really know a lot about the Lord. They study the scriptures. Oh, yeah. read the Bible five times through and when they do get converted, you know, they are oh, they scour through the Bible. There's a website called, um, what was that atheist website? Infidels.org. Yeah, infidels.org. Yeah, infidels.org. That tries to refute Christianity. And those atheists know everything in the Bible. I mean, they know the Bible better than most Christians. And they're scouring through there trying to find contradictions and things. Yeah. Well, you know, the people are, are uh, real defiant, and like you're talking about. But then they look around, they find the pastor that will, yes, well, well, condone what they're doing. You know, if you're reading like Saturday's paper, it talks about this lady who has a gay son, and then they they find some fellowship someplace that embraces them and tells them this is okay. That just scares me. What kind of a condemnation this kind of a, a pastor is going to come under eventually? Yeah, people are want the comfort of religion yeah. without being converted, exactly. and there's a lot of people offering that. Um, it, the Bible prophesies about this, by the way, if you're probably aware of this, but there is a prophecy given by Paul in 2 Timothy 4 that predicts the exact circumstance that we are in today. And it says, um, I think it says, because they won't endure sound doctrine, they will bring, yeah, they will find somebody to preach what they want to hear. What they want to hear is MCC. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy 4.3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with what? Their own desires. And so that's... uh, I heard this in Bible college, and I think here... At the time, I didn't know if it was true, but this Bible verse here uh, uh, gives evidence for it. They said in Bible college... And a man's morality dictates his theology. And I think that what, he, what they were getting at was that some, some people that don't want to change will just come up with a theology that suits the way they are. And that's what's prophesied, that, they'll, that their desires will determine what kind of doctrine they're willing to listen to. And it says that they will turn their ears from truth and will turn the sight of myths. So what are you supposed to do? Give them myths? No. Be sober, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You know, uh, uh, it's, good, it's important for us not to get discouraged, because when, when you look around at the religious trends, it looks really bad. But you know, the gospel never loses the power that's innate to the gospel, because it's the good news of Jesus Christ to convert sinners. And so, Pastor Turner, I thought, had a, had a good point, you know. There's a, another target for evangelism is the unconverted Christian. Amen. So, the Christians need to hear the gospel. <laughs> Amen. Okay, so uh, after that little detour into number 15, but I, I think it's a helpful one. Keep that in the back of your mind as we go through Hebrews, that there's this idea of defiance, and we're, we're not saying we are sinners. We are sinners. But God help us to not be defiant. No, we're not better than anybody else either. Not at all. And that's definitely one of the things that people were asking out there on the street, you know. Well, how, what do I have to dress like? What do I have to be like? This is, you know, just come to church. We're not, by walking through the door out here, I'm not making a statement about how good I am. I'm making a statement about how bad I need God. (laughs) (laughs) Do you get the idea? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you can quote me on that. I, I totally agree. I, I come here because I need God. Is that why we're here? So he can, uh, the high priest could deal gently with the ignorant and misguided because he was the same way. Okay, now, um, Brian, if you could look up, look up Exodus 32, 2 through 5. And um, did you say your name is Joe? Peter. Peter, I'm sorry. Do you want to do one? Sure. Exodus 32, 21 to 24. Exodus 32, 21 to 24. And then is Troy? I, every once in a while I get the name anointing or whatever. Numbers 20, 10 through 12. So Aaron replied, Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives, your sons and daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a molten calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw the molten calf, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. <laughs> That's proof that Aaron was a sinner. Okay? And then later, he, he, he uh, remember his excuse later when Moses confronted him? He says, well, they gave me the gold, I threw it in a fire, and out came this cat. Yeah, maybe the big bang is true. What happened again? Oops, I did it again. I don't think so. It said right there, he fashioned it. <laughs> okay, intelligent design, even for an idol. Exodus 32, 21 to 24, Peter. Okay. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. <laughs> there you go. Sounds like it. Sounds like something a, a kid would come up with. <laughs> Who broke this lamp? Well, I don't know. The neighbor's dog got in the house and knocked it over. <laughs> well, there, there you go. That's the, that's the way the sinner goes. There, he's uh, he doesn't want to fess up to what he did. Notice also the, their reason was we don't know what became of Moses. You know, they had to see Moses to have comfort. They couldn't just put their faith in God. So, uh, that is the tendency. That is why it's so easy to start new religions. People want a holy man that claims to have some special status that nobody else has. And if you just make that claim, you get people to follow you. Yes? I, I just had a thought. I'd like to make a connection between what we were just talking about in these verses and there was a Barna study that came out recently, and they pulled supposed born-again Christians. I don't know exactly what the criteria for, for that was, but uh, the, the, the numbers were staggering. It was only about uh, uh, 20 to 25 percent of the, the supposed born-again Christians had a, uh, a biblical world view, and then they went on and they uh, uh, polled pastors, and uh, again the uh, numbers were uh, it was it was up to like 30, 35 percent of pastors in America had a world view. So you, my, my point is in, is that when you now you can you know you, you threw some gold into the fire and out it came and it was a calf or the Big Bang Theory, or whatever the, the, the thing is that people are trying to get other people to believe, people buy it. Yeah, they turn, well, like I said, they turn aside to miss. Right. Um, and, boy, we need the Word of God just continually coming into our minds. Yes. Those percentages pretty much parallel what is 
Yeah. Yeah, that's true. There's four kinds of soil. It's only one of them is really bearing fruit. Yeah. You're saying they, they, they couldn't see Moses, but the sad thing about it is when they could see Moses talking at the tent to God himself, Aaron's grandson, Phineas, got to kill 14,000 people because they could see Moses talking to uh, God at the tent so disrespectful that Aaron's grandson, Phineas, put a spirit through a couple of adulterers in their tents because God had killed 14,000 and spreading through the camp because they had such disrespect for God. And here Moses is, they can see him talking to God at the tent. Unbelievable. was still in his total defiance. And then God says, because of what you've done, Phineas, for four generations, your priesthood you know, be, will be fine because I'm so angry. The disrespect. Moses stands before the living God. And the disrespect today of the gospel by faith. The disrespect. And that's why they will be in hell because if they reject even the Pope who carries that scapular that Mary's going to save him, she isn't going to save him. And I'm not against him. I pray for his very soul. Because at one time they had three popes. They had, you could die of being a pope as Constantine. You could buy it. And they had a 12-year-old pope. Catholics don't know nothing about their, uh, their history of, of how awful it is. Yeah. It's just having defiance of the gospel. Having, having a man doesn't solve the problem. No. Okay, uh, Numbers 20, 10 through 12. 20, 10 through 12. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Amen. Yeah, that act, uh, that caused Moses, it wasn't, he didn't lose his salvation, but he lost no. his temporal benefit. Um, it shows how important typology is also in the Bible. Typology uh, it has to do with things that are in the Old Testament that prefigure the new. So the rock is a type of Christ. And the water coming out of the rock is a type of our provision in Christ. Okay. By, and Christ was crucified once. So by, by striking the rock twice, Moses uh, ruined the type. He defiled the type of Christ. And how holy God is. Don't you know holy? That's the thing that's lofty. How holy. God, Moses, you can't. Don't you respect how holy I am? Well, when we say, holy, holy, Lord God, I'm like, where are these living? It's like this lost its meaning today, holiness. Well, if we understand it, it would certainly give us reason to be appealing to the, the high priest who's yes. before God, yes. who, who can take away our sins. Well, let's go to verse 3. Because, because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. So, as we've been saying, uh, this is a reference to the Day of Atonement. And the high priest, I have a couple of quotes here. This is, Leviticus 16 has the story about this, where the uh, requirements are given. It says here, um, he, he, that is the priest, high priest, remained fallible, and provision was made for the appropriate sacrifice in the event of his sin. On the Day of Atonement, he is required to make atonement for himself, for his immediate household, as well as for the congregation of Israel. And in the time of the second temple, the high priest customarily uttered three prayers on the Day of Atonement as he laid his hands on the sacrificial bull and goat. One, for his own sins and those of his household. Two, for his own sins, those of his household and those of the Aaronic priests. And three, for the sins of the house of Israel for the, for the sins of the house of Israel. Neither the Old Testament nor contemporary Judaism encouraged the expectation of a high priest who was without sin. So they understood the high priest was a sinner. Amen. And so that's what makes Jesus absolutely unique because he is not a sinner. Okay, uh, I think Hebrews 7.27, I can't remember your name. Floyd. Floyd, could you look up Hebrews 7.27 and read it to us. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. 
He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered when he offered himself. Yeah, that's a very good explanation. Jesus did not have to sacrifice anything for his own sins, because he had none. And that sacrifice he did make was once for all. So you don't have to do it over and over and over and over. It's a once for all sacrifice. Amen. Yeah, amen. And so that's very important. Here's what happened, according to Leviticus 16, this is just a little summary of what happened on the Day of Atonement. Number one, Aaron had to offer a bull for his own sin offering to atone for his own sin and the sin of his household. Two, enter the most holy place with incense. Three, sprinkle the blood of the bull on, of, on the atonement cover of the ark. That's what we call the mercy seat. Mercy seat. Yeah. And it says in Hebrews that Jesus is our mercy seat. This is another type of Christ, the mercy seat is. Four, cast lots over two live goats brought by the people. Kill one of the goats for a sin offering for the nation and sprinkle the blood inside the holy place. Place his hand on the head of the live goat and confess the sins of the people and send the live goat away into the wilderness. That's where we get the phrase scapegoat. From that literal practice of putting, symbolically putting the sins on the goat and sending him out into the wilderness for them. So that all happened on the Day of Atonement every year in, in Judaism. Very interesting. So, if you were a Jew back in those days, it would certainly make you aware of the holiness of God, and it would make you aware of the need for forgiveness, just to see this whole thing happen every year. Yes? You mentioned earlier that Christ died once for all. Yes. Isn't, I don't even know about the can of words here, but isn't there something in the Catholic Church where Christ is still on the cross? Isn't that like a continual... Yeah, you know, I wrote that article. I wrote an article called The Gospel for Roman Catholics. The answer to this, because there were so many disillusioned Catholics after these scandals. So I wrote this article and sent it out to my readers and said, well, this article is for you to give to your Catholic friends. And I got some response to it and I actually got to go visit with some different Catholics who wanted to have me share, explain my beliefs to them through that article. <coughs> but one of the things that some of the negative responses I got, there, there are some Catholics that seem like they do know the Lord and for some reason they stayed there. And some of them just were saying to me, well, no, we don't really believe that. In other words, they, they'd say, we don't really believe that Jesus has to be sacrificed again. We don't believe the Mass is a sacrifice. And we don't believe that Mary can make intercession for us. And they just said, we don't believe any of that. Well, I said, well, okay, that's fine. But, you, you know, they're ignoring the fact that millions and millions do. Um, and I was writing to the average Catholic who doesn't understand the gospel. I'm hoping for them to see. And in that article, there was a lot of emphasis on the once for all sacrifice and the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Amen. And I just wanted these Catholic people to know, because they're not going to probably hear this from their priest, that they have direct access to the throne of grace through the blood of Jesus if they call upon him in faith. Amen. And that they have a high priest who entered into heaven and who sits at the right hand of the Father. And they, because I, literally, just in the popular masses of, of, of Catholics, many don't think that they can go to Jesus. They, and, and it was some of the people that were critical, I said, you know, I wasn't writing about official church dogma, which I, you know, I've got the catechism and there's, it's changed, they keep changing it. Okay? And I said, I, I'm not trying, I'm not even addressing that. I'm not trying to debate the teaching magisterium of the church. I'm trying to address the common person who goes to Mass so that they can know they can come to Jesus Christ by faith for their forgiveness of sins. And do you have a problem with people learning that? That's what I said to them. <laughs> well, I guess not. I, you know. <laughs> I mean, it sounds pretty bad to say they can't go to Jesus. So they, you know, so they won't come out and officially say that. But we need to have that message to a prayer for whoever they are, whoever is confused. Because that's the gospel. So that you could go to Jesus. He made atonement for sins once for all. Is that, is that one of your CIC articles? Yes. About a year or two ago. I, and then I sent a little thing saying, give this to your, make as many copies as you want to give this to your friends. Use it to witness. Well, it's good that Hebrews is still in the Catholic Bible. Yeah, it really is. Exactly. That would be a very good place to start. Just start reading through this. It, it answers all the questions right here. 
Do you go right to Jesus Christ? The, he's the priest. Amen. Yeah. Well, they play that part. You're so unworthy, you know. Devout Catholic, you're so unworthy, you know. And of course, we're unworthy. We're all sinners. But they play that card, trump card, and then you've got to go like. Well, I've been talking to my sister for 33 years since I got converted. Finally, one day she's in the kitchen. She says, "Man, going all these saints, the Luke or uh, Jude is for impossible tasks." You know, St. Jude. You see in the paper, it says all the time, seven thank yous to St. Jude. Now, let's see in the paper how many thank yous to Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, none. So she's finally one day, it's the Holy Spirit has to open her mind, and she thought, here I'm going to all these saints, light candles, Mary, I can't go to God, but not where Mary go to him and talk to Jesus. So I, and finally it was like God opened her heart. Why don't you just go direct to go? Why don't you go to the Lord? You know, that has to be the Holy Spirit opening your mind. Finally, she, uh, after all these years, I go to the Lord. But they're so drummed in your head, you're so unworthy. Of course we're unworthy. We all deserve hell. But the saints, and they keep pounding. And then you want to die at the communion rail. When I want to die, I'd be at the communion rail. Went to the priest, got cleansed by the priest, and be at that communion rail. Get communion. It's the literal body and blood of Christ. And then drop dead right there, because I'd be sure and get into heaven. <laughs> really? I, and I mean it. That's how they feel about communion. But the Catholic Church without communion would be dead tomorrow. Oh, oh, oh Lord, take me now. <laughs> but I'm serious. Without communion, the Catholic Church would be dead. Yeah, that's, that's their little mystical game to hold, the, hold you in instead of the dear Lord. When you, I trusted him, like I said before, it's our Father, our Heaven. No longer do you have that control. I mean, really, it isn't the Pope that had control of me. It was the God of this age, Satan. Because when I was lost, we but a little for the dead. But the foolish wicked and the foolish sinner, life is death itself. At 25 years old, I knew I was a walking dead man. Everything was going good for me, but I was dead. Like Scripture said, I didn't know why. But the, too bad the priest, when I went back to him, couldn't tell me the gospel. Plus the Protestants too. So that's where I had a lot of fear. To think that I got saved and go out amongst the Protestants, and they couldn't tell me the gospel. Dan, is, do you think that because of that, that's why one of the reasons God... Uh, motivates you so much to well, I told the priest, I'm so angry what you've done to me. I said, I'm going to tell the world so they don't have to go through the hell you put me through. That's what I told the priest. The hell you put me through. Well, Dan, I got I bear witness that you literally do go out and tell the whole world. Okay, uh, Bert, Leviticus 4, 3 through 12. That's kind of a long section. I guess there's some reason why I wrote it down. And Barb, Leviticus 16, 6 and 15, that will give us a little idea about this Day of Atonement. Leviticus 4, 3 through 12. You know, the Gospel is in the Old Testament, isn't it? Yes, it is. Praise the Lord. In type, in figure, and in, in direct prophecy. Praise God. The, the, the whole, I'm going to preach on that, by the way, this morning. Everything in Scripture is given for our encouragement. Amen. Literally, from Romans 15. I, I was going to preach on 16 verses, but when I got done my study, then I cut it down to 6. <laughs> okay, because that one verse 4 was so good. Leviticus 4, starting with verse 3. If the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without Defect, as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. And he shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And he shall lay his hands on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, a fragrant incense which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the, on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it was removed from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest is to offer them up in smoke on the altar of burnt offering. But the high
night of the ball, and all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull, he is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp, where the ashes are poured out, and burn, uh, burn it on the wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. Okay, that's, thank you. <laughs> you know, uh, that's pretty graphic, isn't it? Yes, it is. I remember uh, somebody, we were watching some videos in a men's group about Leviticus, and the guy, the speaker, was saying that uh, one thing about this graphic nature of what they had to do was to just drive home how badly they needed atonement for sin and how serious it is. Okay? And so, and living in that kind of a world of, this, of these sacrifices made them conscious of how bad they needed God's forgiveness and how, how serious the sin problem is. Okay, Leviticus 16, just 6 and 15. 16 and 15? Yeah. 16 and 15. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take it out behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover. And in front of it. Yeah. So it poured out before God. So then in verse, uh, Hebrews 5 and verse 4, And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So the office of high priest was something that was to be received by God's calling. Now by the time Jesus came into human history, there was a lot of corruption that had entered in the Israel, and they were buying and selling offices, and unqualified people were taking it, and it had become more of a political thing. And so that was one of the uh, defilements that they had brought to the priesthood, was just making it political. You can read about that. And Wasn't Caiaphas a father-in-law, one of them that bought when Jesus was on earth? Well, I, I'd have to look back at, my, at the history, but I, I know that... Um, from the time of the Maccabees on, there was a lot of problems. And there was disputes about it, about who was who was supposed to be in charge. And it became very political. So you know that part about the Romans in Leviticus, I, I think of the, the simple verse, uh, 1711? Yeah. Was that covered? 1711? Yeah. Leviticus? Yeah. What, what did read it? Um... Yeah, it just says, for the life of the flesh is human blood, and I have given it to you on the altar uh, to make atonement for your soul. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Yeah. Well, yeah, the life is in the blood. Yeah. And, and later in Hebrews it says, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Amen. So blood uh, in the Old Testament stood for a poured out life. Okay, and I think this is a confusion that some people have about the blood of Jesus. When when it talks about the sins being removed by the blood of Jesus, it signifies his poured out life. Amen. The fact that he died. Amen. The life is in the blood. His life was poured out. And so a lot of people have a magical view of the blood as if it were some sort of a metaphysical entity. Have you heard people like plead the blood over their car before they drive it? Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, plead the blood over their billfold so they'll have more money in it. <laughs> that doesn't. No, that's not. So what I mean? Yes. Well, they, that's one thing in denial. The Bible isn't the Word of God. For, for eighteen hundred fifty years, they said the body, the blood, was the garbage pit of the body. They used to go to the barber shop and they bloodlet you because of the impurities. Well, the Bible scientifically said they finally realized. That, Scientifically, that when God says the life of the body is in the blood, it was. But for 1,850 years, they wouldn't believe. So even in the little tidbits throughout Scripture, it proves that God's word stands the test of time. That's, it is in the blood, point. and they wouldn't believe it. Yeah, they were trying to get rid of blood because it was bad. It's the guard, yeah. Good yeah. way to kill somebody. Okay, so um, this calling of God is our new topic here. The person is the honor of the office is through God's calling, not through. Um, human machinations or 
of political wranglings. It's, God determines who the high priest is. Okay, Exodus 20. Uh, uh, Kathy, could you do Exodus 28.1 and Cladoras? Numbers 3.3 3 and Norm. Numbers 16. Um, well, we don't want to read that many. It says 20 through 40 here. A whole off on number 16. We'll be here until the fellowship time. I may have written something down wrong here. I'm going to look that up. 20 through 24, Oh, no, that was 20 through 40. Uh, we'll just allude to that, okay? <laughs> I've got it open here, and I'll tell you what's in that story. It, it, that's the right number of verses, but it's a, it's a time when they decided to rebel against the God's calling and do it their own way. And there's a whole story about it. Okay. Uh, 28 1. Just one verse. 28 1. Uh, Exodus 28 1. Yes. But you don't have to read the names. The kids. So they may be as priests. Aaron and kids. <laughs> All right, so Aaron was the one. And then um, uh, Numbers, what did I say, 3 and verse 3? 3, 3. Yes. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he consecrated to minister as priests. All right, so Aaron was the anointed, consecrated one. Because God chose him, not because he was better. We saw he'd made the golden calf and lie about it. He was a sinner, but it's the one God chose to use. Now, this, uh, this passage that I was uh, going to have Norm read, but we said it's too long. Number 16, 20 through 40 is a time when they had a rebellion over this. Um, uh, basically, the Lord is telling Moses and Aaron, separate Back away from this congregation, I'm going to kill them all. But they fell on their faces and they said, God, uh, thou God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, wilt thou be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, said, uh, get back from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Remember, remember Dathan in the movie, The Ten Commandments? Yeah, he was, he was, he was always making trouble. Well, anyhow, so God consumed these people, and the ground opened up and swallowed them. Yeah, because they were going to decide for themselves who was going to be the leaders and not allow God to decide it. So they dropped right into Sheol instantly. Everything. Right into the earth. So that was Korah's rebellion. That's what that story was about. So that sets us up for verse 5, because the point about this is that there is one in particular God has chosen who is the eternal high priest, and that is Jesus Christ. So here's what it says. So also, okay, remember the idea of being called by God. So also, Christ did not glorify himself as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So, here we have the son and the high priest, who is going to be a king and priest. Uh, now, Norm, could you look up Psalm 2 at verse 7? And Lois, Micah 5, 2. We'll be done. Psalm 2 and verse 7, go ahead. I will declare the decree the Lord said unto me, you are my son, today I have forgotten you. Yep. That's the prophecy about Messiah being son of God. Eternal son. Micah 5, 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall be come forth unto me, unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel. Whose going forth have been from old from everlasting. Yeah, that again the Old Testament 
makes it clear that this coming one is not just an ordinary person because it says who's going forth were from everlasting. And so this isn't just an ordinary person being born, but the son being sent. All right? And so this could be proven from the Old Testament. It's very, very important. It's very Jewish ago. Kill the babies because of that? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, the, when the pagans came, God sovereignly moved upon these pagans to come and worship Christ, which is, by the way, a prophetic... Uh, God did that in order to foreshadow the fact that Gentiles are going to come to Christ. I think that that's why... God did that. He leads these people to worship Christ. And it also sets up a huge irony because he goes to the people who really should be worshiping Christ and they knew where he'd be because they had the scriptures. And they, and they correctly said Bethlehem, Micah 5 2. And so, uh, what did Herod do? He said, Well, have them, why don't you guys come back later after you find him so we, I can go uh, worship him? And he wants to kill him. And so, here we have Scripture fulfilled that Messiah would, whose goings forth are from everlasting, meaning his pre-existence, and he comes and is born in Bethlehem. And the king of Israel tries to kill him. Amen. Herod. Although Herod was a, point, he was a client king of Rome, uh, but he had a lot of affinity with the Jews because he was married to a Jewish woman until yeah. he killed her. But, but, uh, and he had helped him rebuild the temple. Well, the, he was, uh, Herod was a, uh, it's confirmed in history, by the way, through Josephus and others, that what the biblical account of Herod is very accurate about what kind of person he was. He was, he had all these fears that somebody was going to take the throne. And so he built these fortresses where he could go and be safe, like Masada. He had one at Caesarea. And, and he had these, all these big, huge places made so that he, he was always afraid somebody's going to kill him. Well, they're afraid of their own wives, these kind of people. Because they have so much power and prestige, they don't want to, somebody else is going to want to take it, want to kill them. Okay, so there we have prophecy. Next week we'll study more about Hebrews 5 and the high priest of, uh, of Jesus being that of the order of Melchizedek. So we'll have to discuss that.